Okay, welcome to the class on uh, Second Corinthians. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather together this week uh, again um, to open up the Scriptures, to pray for one another, to um, encourage one another, to explore the details of our mutual salvation, and to be exhorted and encouraged by your Word. We pray that you would uh, continue to work in our lives as we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, I got an email I thought was kind of interesting from South Africa. We, there's people all around the world that listen to this class um, on the Internet. So, here's what it says. Um... He has a couple of questions. He says this, Thanks for making the TCF sermons available online. I download them on a regular basis. Please pray for us here as the crime is really getting out of hand. We all know someone who has been a victim of violent crime, so it gets very depressing at times. Also, the rate of unemployment is high, so we also need prayer for all of us unemployed people. Any material to read, sermons to listen to regarding tough times, especially when God seems to be silent? Question mark. Thanks again. Then he says this, Blessings to TCF and all the congregation and say hi to the man with the loud voice in Sunday school. <laughs> I don't, there's no Dan here today. But anyhow, he says, uh, I like him. <laughs> I, I hope to be as bold as he is when I'm older. I'm only 35 now. <laughs> So Dan has a fan in South Africa. <laughs> so um, I thought I'd share that with you. So pray for our, the saints in South Africa. I actually hear from quite a few. Well, Keith travels there some, but I hear from quite a few people. And my books, uh, one guy has, I don't know how many of my books that he's bought and distributed in South Africa. So we do have some people down there in that country who are hungry for the things of the Lord and are uh, glad that we're putting stuff out there for them to learn along with us. We're studying 2 Corinthians and we are on chapter 1 and verse 12, which is the beginning of a new paragraph. I'll read the paragraph, which is three verses, at least according to the New American Standard. It says here, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. For just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you are also ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now there's a term here, there's a repeated term, uh, proud confidence, um, verse 4, literally, reason to be proud means your confidence. And then verse 15, he goes back to the idea, and in this confidence. Now, lying be- behind the terminology that Paul's using here is, is a, a situation of some tension between him and this church. And there's at least a few individuals who have very much turned against Paul and are trying to turn the rest of the church against him. And there, I'm going to read some material to you that will give the background 
of this. But he had, there's a letter that he had sent that he hoped it would have a certain effect and apparently did. But that letter we don't have. We don't, we don't know the contents of it, but he does talk about the sorrowful letter as it's called. So that had been sent. Paul had not been able to get there. He was afraid that they're going to think that his, uh, not getting there was, uh, somehow an indication of a lack of concern for them, things like that. Okay, so verse 12 says, Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, um, we've conducted ourselves. So, Paul is through, throughout 2 Corinthians defending his apostolic ministry, defending his motives and motivations, and uh, wanting them to know that he really d- does have their best interests in mind. Now, Paul normally doesn't like to do this. In fact, later in 2 Corinthians, he says, I've become a fool because you compelled me to. And so it was very distasteful for the apostle to um, be saying things about his own self that he has good motives. He just should not talk about that. But he has to because he's associated with the gospel. He brought the gospel to the Corinthians. And if they turn against him, he's concerned it will also cause them to turn against the gospel that he's preached. And so he has to defend that fact that he is truly the apostle of Jesus Christ and that the message he brought to them is the true gospel of God's grace and that he's truly God's ambassador and uh, and the one God has set forth to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because there are false apostles who are challenging all this. And if they win the battle, Paul is concerned for the spiritual well-being of this church, because false teachers and false apostles will harm a church if the church listens to them. And as we all know too well. <coughs> so let's look at some of this terminology, proud confidence, which is a repeated term here. Uh, we could call that grounds, okay, you're okay. Grounds for boasting. Grounds for boasting. Boasting is an interesting thing. Um, in the Bible. It can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. The term boasting is used 29 times in 2 Corinthians. <laughs> so, And what's at issue is what one is going to boast in. Certain boasting is good. Other boasting is very, very bad. Okay, And it basically boils down to a very simple idea whether one is boasting in God and the work of God that he's done by grace or boasting in the flesh, well, who we are and what we did. So, he is boasting that indeed um, the work of God has been such that he has, uh, with sincerity um, and with a good conscience, served God and worked to help them by God's grace. Now, the word conscience, sunedasis, I think I've... It was like three weeks ago when I did the study for this, so I'm going to remember what I did. Yep, I did. I, I printed something out of the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Um, I had remembered looking this up probably 20 years ago and found that they had a very interesting entry on the word conscience. Well, this is church. Ecclesia. 
Where's conscience? I may have to just tell you about it. I don't remember if I printed it out. I thought I printed it out. All right, let me tell you about it. <laughs> if you look at the theological dictionary of the New Testament under the entry for conscience, they'll tell you all the different uses of it in the New Testament and in the ancient Greek world, but there's no equivalent word in Hebrew. And the comment of the of scholars, why is there no equivalent word for the word conscience in the Hebrew Old Testament? And the reason that the, they came to the conclusion, the reason was because the Jews had the law and the objective revelation of God about what's right and wrong is far more reliable than the human conscience. And so they did in the Old Testament, they had the law, they appealed to that. They didn't appeal to their own conscience because then they didn't even have a word for it. So that's interesting. And if you think about that in Romans, by the way, I taught through eight chapters of Romans, verse by verse, skipping nothing in ten hours in Arkansas. And, um, you practicing here for second <laughs> No. I'm telling you, of course, these are students that were required to be there because they'd sign up to go to the School of Biblical Studies. So they were there taking notes. I just started lecturing. Boom, 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 boom. Three hours, over over three hours a day. I was lecturing for three days, three, over three hours a day. Never. The fact at the end, one of the young ladies said, he never slowed down. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and Jim said, well, we usually take Thursdays off so that the speaker can, can recover because it's just so grueling to, to, to lecture three and a half hours, two, three days in a row. But I don't think it'll bother you. So, so I went ahead and just went on on Thursday and just kept going. And we came across this word sunadesis in Romans. And it sort of plays out that same way as what the theological dictionary said about the Jews. Of course, the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament have a conscience the same way everybody does. But they didn't talk about it because they had the law. They talked about that. Because that's how they gain their moral guidance, not following their own conscience, because the conscience is unreliable. But in Romans, it's, it talks about those who don't have the law, who do the things in the law of their conscience bearing witness. In Romans 2. And so, uh, those without the law still are accountable to God. Now, Paul's point in Romans is that everybody's accountable. And if they had never heard the Ten Commandments, <clears throat> and they never read Torah, and they never knew anything about specific revelation from God, they still are totally accountable to God for His moral law, according to Romans chapter 2. And uh, and so, it's not saying that people are saved by following their conscience. It's not saying that people are saved by following the law. It says, it's what, he, what Paul is teaching is that people are, are found to be sinners based on every sort of revelation God ever had. General revelation specific revelation, their own conscience, the law itself, whatever you had that told us what was right and wrong, you sinned against it. That's Romans 1 and 2 and the first half of 3. <coughs> what, what he's claiming is that even the pagans, take whatever, just go to an, whatever pagan you want to and ask him what the standard is, a standard of righteousness, and say, have you kept this perfectly? And he always will say no. Yeah. That's, all, that's all the claim is. Yeah. That's that, absolutely, and that's what Ray Comfort does, as you know. If you've seen Hell's Best Kept Secret, he he, uh, he asks people things like, "Have you ever told a lie?" He teaches them the Ten Commandments, and then he, he starts asking them about their own behavior. And on the video, he asks this one guy, "Have you ever told a lie?" And the guy says, "No." 
And everybody was laughing. They said, well, you did now. <laughs> You're a sinner. <laughs> and um, so they're convicted by the law. So sunidesis is the Greek word for conscience. And it's that, let me see, find where I'm at here. I've got so many pages of notes here. I had a quote here. I think they may be quoted. Uh, here's what uh, Garland says. The witness of his own conscience, which only God can judge, bears testimony to his honorable motives and behavior. The word conscience should not be understood as some inner voice that urges us to do what is right or nags us when we're wrong. It refers to the human faculty whereby a person either approves or disapproves of his or her actions, whether already performed or only intended, and those of others. It denotes the human faculty of critical self-evaluation. Yeah, critical self-evaluation. I, I was a guy came in here once that I think you know, he he was having some mental problems, but he he came and says, "I've got a I, I have a white angel on my right shoulder." And a black angel on my left shoulder, and this one tells me to do good things, and this one tells me to do bad things. And I, I'm trying real hard to follow the, the white one that tells me to do the good things. And I says, neither one of them are from God. You are not going to follow God's moral law by listening to voices. I would ignore them both. I assume they're both from Satan. If you want to know what God wants you to do, read the Bible. Don't listen to voices. That's what this guy's saying. So it isn't like some voice saying, here, go do this and don't do that. But it's that which convicts us when we know we're doing wrong. Well, I was having a discussion this week, and it gets down to the same thing. It's not an inner voice. Or I would, we don't know truth because it feels we feel truth. We know truth because cognitively, with our understanding, we can grasp truth, and it's true. And there's reason involved in our reasoning that this is true. Not somebody saying something, and we just have a wonderful feeling inside. In the same ways with the conscience, a conscience may have a feeling. He's not denying that we have feelings inside, but the way that we know it's true or not, even according to our conscience, is to critically evaluate it, compare it to Objective. a standard. Exactly. Well, here, here's a footnote uh, quoting somebody else in my commentary here. The Pauline use of sunodesis, conscience. Quote, conscience denotes a neutral inward faculty of judgment, but possessed by all humanity, which evaluates conduct in an objective way in accordance with given and recognized norms. Okay? So if you don't have given and recognized norms, the conscience gets, is not going to lead you very into the truth. In fact, doesn't it say in uh, Timothy about people having their conscience seared with a hot iron? And so uh, a society or an individual that knows something to be wrong can decide to do it anyhow for whatever reason and do it over and over again until it doesn't feel wrong anymore to their conscience. It doesn't seem like it's wrong. Yes? You know, this is an instance where we need to make sure that we always go to see what the Scriptures define as conscience rather than us because our culture, we think, I mean, Jiminy Cricket, you know, that's what I grow, you know, when you think of conscience, you remember Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket was his conscience. And same with the little, whole little you know, devil and the angel. These are the things that our, our culture tells us, and that's kind of what we kind of, then we read the scriptures and we import these inherent, you know, thoughts or definitions into the scriptures. But the truth is, is uh, the Bible defines what Paul means here. 
And there was a, I wrote an article for CIC about five years ago about what would Jesus do, the bracelets, you know. Oh, yeah. And, I remember that. And it, it's related to this because it's a, the, the thrust of the article is, is it's a faulty moral system because it's really based on liberal theology. Uh, and what people do is they look at the bracelet, what would Jesus do, and almost without exception, they go to something other than the scriptures to define, and I'll go beyond what would, I mean, even, we shouldn't even be asking what would Jesus do because if someone asks you, are you God, and we look at the bracelet, we're not going to do what Jesus would have done because we're, we're yeah, not. He's, he's unique. <laughs> we're, we're not he's Christ. He's unique. We're not Christ. So yeah. the, the thing is, is the heart's deceptive. Above yeah. all else. Yeah. So therefore, for our guidance, we can't go to even our, our conscience. We need to go to the Word of God Absolutely. because the heart is deceptive. Yeah. Right. And the role of the conscience, by the way, is to uh, remind us that we're doing something that the Word of God says not to. The moral guidance is in the Word. The conscience is reminding us that we need to follow it. Yes? The thing that comes to my mind, to be that we always... A few years back when they were saying to be like Jesus, we wouldn't be able to because of our fallen nature. That's true. Um, and I agree with Ryan that what would Jesus do is not very helpful. Dick over here. Um, that, by the way, was written. That was a, that's a 19th century thing by a guy named Shelton. In his, steps. in his steps. And it was written by a theological liberal who had given up on the idea of atonement. Yeah, they didn't believe in error in Scripture. They didn't believe in substitutionary atonement. So what would Jesus do was an ethical guidance system that they thought they could derive from the Bible. And so liberalism is generally a system of system of ethics minus any kind of atonement. Now, I read a book. I'm researching for a book I'm going to write on the emergent church. And I read a book while I was on my trip called The Secret Message of Jesus by Brian McLaren. It's his latest book. And what the secret message of Jesus is, is the social gospel. There's no system of atonement in this entire book. And he picks and chooses from the teachings of Jesus ideas about the kingdom. And so Brian McLaren's secret message of Jesus is to go out into the world and try to solve the world's problems and make the world a better place to live in. That's it. There's no atonement. So what people don't understand is that theological liberalism is not, although nowadays it's manifesting itself in wickedness, where, but it, to, historically it did not. In fact, when I looked up Shelton uh, to look up a bio on the guy that, that did the What Would Jesus Do? It showed him, uh, they had a picture of him like in 1914 with a bunch of people busting lick, uh, liquor bottles out uh, during Prohibition out in the street and dumping it down the sewer. He, he was on a social crusade to, to rid America of evil, but he didn't believe in the blood atonement. And so the emergent church is saying we should be kind, we should be loving, we should have compassion on the poor, we should do good deeds, we should do things like Jesus did, but we don't have any atonement. And there's no hell. So you're counting on people to decide they want to go out and be good people just because that's a nice idea. And that's what the kingdom of God is going to look like. Yes, Dick. Okay, but given the fact that a few of us don't have the encyclopedic knowledge of the scripture that you and Keith and Ryan have, and we're stuck with living every day with the conscience that we're stuck with, 
it says to me that we've got to clean up the conscience, get it lined up with the Word of God, because it's going to be our guide. What do you say to that? Uh, well, I would say that the better informed we are on the, in the Scripture, and as the Holy Spirit is at work in our life, Paul said that my conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit, the more reliable the conscience is to be reminding us that we're doing wrong. Does that make sense? That's the point I was going to bring up, is that the conscience is not something that is infallible. The conscience is something that we train. And as parents, if we train our children and bring them up in the way of the Lord, the Scriptures then will train their conscience so it's a useful tool that gives them good guidance because it's been properly fed and and cared for. If you're in a society of, of wickedness, and in a society where yeah. ethics are decaying, such I mean, we read about different societies where good is called evil and evil is called good. In fact, Scripture South says... South Africa. Remember I just read that guy's email? Or, or there's Murder there, is just considered what you do. Well, there's, there's a Scripture in, you know, evil freely struts about when what is wicked is considered good among men. And when we invert that and our conscience are perverted or poorly trained or seared, they become a very bad guide because they can lead us. I'm not doing anything wrong. I hate, I've forgotten how to blush. I've forgotten what good and wrong is, and I'm following my own leading. When it says in Kings or uh, Judges, every man, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was good in his own eyes. It recounts after that the most heinous atrocities that were committed because they, people claimed it was good, and they were following their conscience that was perverted. Yeah. Yes. I agree very much with what you said about training up your children to um, comply with the truth of the Word of God. I thought of an analogy um, that the Word of God could be viewed as like a tuning fork and um, our conscience would be, by training, um, in tune with the, with the tuning fork. Okay. <laughs> okay, let me read a little background material here that I brought with me uh, based on this verse here from... Um, um, a scholar by the name of Garland says this, this passage contains, we're talking about verse 12, this passage contains the theme statement for the letter. Paul hopes the Corinthians will understand that he is their boast in the Lord, will see that they can and should be proud of him instead of denigrating him. This theme is restated in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, quote, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience, there's that word again, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again by giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Unquote. His object is to answer those who take pride in, uh, is to get them to evaluate him properly so they can speak of him with pride in spite of his afflictions and will defend him against those who denigrate his ministry. His hope is that they will pray for him in his sufferings give thanks for his deliverance rather than belittle him, uh, that they uh, would embrace him as their boast. So Paul's sufferings was part of the offense that they were seeing. Um, the Corinthians were enamored with the sophists, as we see from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, with worldly wisdom, with what's articulate, which what, what is handsome, what is uh, winsome, what is desirable. And Paul was none of those things. They were looking at external appearances, and here's a beat-up guy. Imagine what he looked like after all those beatings he'd had, um, and stonings and all this stuff, and he's imprisoned part of the time, and he's, uh, they said his, his personal presence was unimpressive, except Corinthians 10, 
and that he wasn't very articulate. They liked Apollos better, silver-tongued orator. So they were making their evaluation based on something other than what was going on inwardly, which was Paul's desire to be faithful to the gospel. I, uh, a scripture that really kind of encapsulates the whole issue of the conscience being trained by the word is in Hebrews. Um, let me quick read it. Hebrews 5. For though this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature. And here's the, the punchline. Who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good from evil. So, senses there, I think, is as far as conceptually goes, is analogous to what we're talking about with the conscience. Yeah. The senses are being trained, trained by the Word of God, and the product is discerning good from evil. So that right. really is the truth. And so, what happens is, um, when Christians aren't being fed the truth of the Word, they lose their discernment. You know, if you do the opposite of what it says here. In other words, you gain discernment by being trained in the, in the Scriptures. That's where your discernment comes from. It comes from objective sources, not subjective ones. I know I've had people say, well, I got the gift of discernment. And what they mean is, well, I d- it didn't feel right. <laughs> well, you, you, sometimes your hunch may be right. Sometimes your intuition might actually be right. But it's not a reliable way. Because there are a lot of people going to something that they think feels right, and they're out totally deluded. You got to have an objective answer. Yes. The one thing that really I think has bewildered a lot of people throughout the years now is this country. After World War II, we were on a roll where we just were so proud of ourselves, and everything was everyone was looking to us for answers for our problem for their problems. And here we started going on the opposite direction. And still a lot of people right now are still bewildered. What's going on? Okay, let's look up some cross-references. We'll start over here with Diane. I'll go this way. Um, Diane, Acts 24:16. Denise, Romans 9:1. Um, Linda, Jeremiah 9:23-24. Stephan, 1 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5. Carla, 1 Corinthians 15 Ten, Troy, I'm on a roll. <laughs> I got every name so far. <laughs> if you want me to learn your name, just sit in the front row. <laughs> uh, Troy, one Timothy, one five, and Pauline, Hebrews thirteen. Hold on here. I think it says eighteen, thirteen, eighteen. And then uh, Ryan, 1 Peter 3, 6. Got a lot of cross-references. Okay, uh, before Diane reads here, I want to mention here, godly sincerity means without duplicity. You know, what's duplicity? Yeah, duplicity would be presenting one thing when something else is actually real. Okay? It would be like an insincere politician. Bait and switch. <laughs> yeah, bait and switch. Yeah. Okay, uh, Acts 24, 16. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Okay. That's what Paul's strove to do. Strive to. Okay, excuse me. Romans 9.1. Romans 9.1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Spirit. Okay. That's about the conscience. And then Jeremiah 9.23 and 24. 
Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Wow, that's a great passage. Don't let the rich man boast in his riches. There's only one thing to boast in, and that's that you know the Lord, and then you're boasting in the Lord, not in yourself, because it's by grace that we know him. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Right. And the power of God in that context was the power of the gospel to deliver people from God's wrath and to change them uh, to people who are loving God and serving him. It's the power of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. That's an interesting balance, isn't it? By the grace of God, I am what I am. So he's giving God the glory. God's grace didn't prove vain. Vain means futile or ineffective. So grace is uh, an enabling power. When God gives grace, God changes lives because God's grace is infused with his gracious power to deliver people and to change them. So Paul said his grace didn't prove vain. But it doesn't make one passive because then Paul says, but I labeled, I labored more than them all, so I worked really hard. But not I, but the grace of God in me. So he starts with grace, ends with grace, and uh, in, the, in the middle points out that he works hard. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, there, I guess there's various analogies that, to that, but here in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1 12 says, but in the grace of God we've conducted ourselves in the world. So by that he means God enabled. God's powerful work of grace that changes him. And so then he says we have conducted ourselves. So grace is certainly one of the most important Christian doctrines that we can have. But never does grace create a lax passive, lazy attitude because in the grace of God, we conducted ourselves in the world. In other words, he took action. I was going to say the same thing. When this is working out and your conscience is working and you have grace conducting yourself in the world, you see in 1 Timothy what the the requirements of being a leader in the church goes beyond just being a, a good guy in church or other people think you're a good guy in church. It says he must be I have a good reputation with those outside the church so that it will not fall in reproach in the snare of the devil, so that our conscience is trained so that even those outside the church, the pagans, can see that we're consistent with the requirements of the Christian life and the fruit of the Spirit is acting with us, that the pagans can see it. If the pagans yeah. can't see it, you shouldn't be a Christian leader. In other words, uh, if let's say somebody is very pious, but everybody in town says, don't do business with that guy. Yeah, that's not an elder, <laughs> according to that, you know, because uh, the person is, if you do live out Christian ethics, it will be a blessing to the people around you. Now, if the people hate you because of the gospel itself, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Christians that just don't live a very ethical life. Okay, then we had 
1 Corinthians, no, 1 Timothy 1 5, right? Okay. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Okay, the, the goal of our instruction is love. And one of the items here was a sincere conscience. Then, um, did I say Hebrews 13, 18? Okay. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. That's interesting. There Paul says he's, or not Paul, but whoever the wrote Hebrews claims to have a good conscience, but also is asking for prayer. You know, there's always that idea that he, let him who thinks he stand, let, take heed lest he fall. So we always need prayer. And then 1 Peter 3, uh, 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Okay, so they're going to revile us because just because we're not of the world, but don't give them some good reason for doing it. When when Christian, when visible Christian leaders do really stupid things, it brings reproach to the name of Christ. Remember when Oral Roberts was going to lock himself up and not come out until somebody gave him $10 million? Do you remember that? Yeah. I, I was at a church. And then some millionaire stepped up and gave him the money. And they still don't have the city of faith. Yes. I was at a church once where the pastor at a hunting camp and he'd been kicked off their camp had been kicked off hunting at some neighboring land because they were baiting deer so it's the same if you don't have a good reputation in your community and the community that you're around that i don't think the neighbors were christians necessarily but that's a that brings reproach upon the gospel yeah so there even so, at a very small level you don't have to ask for 10 million dollars you can just be selfish or want to have your you know want to shoot a deer in spite of the laws. <laughs> I'm the local pastor, and I go fishing with dynamite. <laughs> I, don't think, uh, I don't think the people around would uh, think that was a good church to go to. <laughs> you know, the old do. <laughs> no. Well, you can't do that anymore. They don't sell you dynamite. But back in the 30s, um, <laughs> the farmers had dynamite. In fact, uh, one guy used to visit uh, in, in the early 80s when he was in his 70s. He's now with the Lord. Told stories about how he used to just go buy dynamite and he was getting stumps out of a field so he could cultivate it. And he, he was telling how he would drill holes down the stump and drop the dynamite in and then go hide in one of the craters. And then, boom, the stump blows right up in the air. He said he was out there with his dog. And, and, he, and he dropped the dynamite into one of the stumps and he was sitting over there waiting for it to blow and his dog was in a crater over here and when it blew up it also goes out this way and it went under the ground and shot his dog up in the air out of the other <laughs> out of the other crater. <laughs> so that was that was back in the thirties, you know, just boom. <laughs> now they don't let you run around with dynamite just because you you want to blow up some stumps. I remember when I was a kid, they were still doing that in the fifties. I saw I remember seeing that. Anyhow, that's how the story about fishy with dynamite comes. Okay, so we are going to verse 13. So Paul, as I said, uh, or as I quoted this garland, is concerned that they don't start holding him in very low esteem because of the circumstances he's in, his sufferings and other things that he can't really change. 
Verse 13, for we are writing nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. It's just a kind of a, a way of saying Paul wrote what he meant. There's a read and understand is a play on words in the Greek that, you, that wouldn't come out in English, but the words have assonance. They sound the same. Um, Paul wrote what he meant. They are supposed to understand what he's reading. Now, Second Peter three. Matter of fact, let's have somebody look that up. Um, Marcus. Second Peter three fifteen and sixteen. Bear in mind, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote, also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Okay, so Paul wrote things, according to Peter, hard to understand. And so what, what happens is the ignorant and unstable distort them to their own destruction. Now, what's being said here is that it, it's incumbent upon us as Christians to understand. In other words, the Scriptures are not going to have an impact in our life if we don't understand them. And understanding them takes work. Okay, <laughs> it takes work. Even Peter had to work at it. You should have seen how hard those students were working. Jim Nissa has an amazing process of inductive Bible study that he's developed, and uh, they were showing me what they were doing. They're working really hard, and what he's basically doing is teaching them how to read. So they take, they get a Bible that's laid out in paragraphs, and they have these things where they break down paragraph by paragraph, and then they have these charts they make. And there's horizontals and verticals, and, and it lays out the theme and how the theme's developed, topics. And they, had, and they had to do all of that. They have to read, like, before I got there to lecture Romans, they'd already read it like three times. They'd already started laying it out in paragraphs, already started looking for the theme of each paragraph and then breaking down into topics within the paragraph. And they, and they had all that done. Then they listened to me lecture for ten hours on Romans. So I think they, you know, probably had some headaches or something, but... It's hard work. It, 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 see, people assume that all they need is some sort of a sincerity and they're, then they're going to be okay. But sincerity won't keep you from being deceived. To understand the Scriptures, you have to learn how to read and to conceptually understand the ideas in the Scripture and understanding them, apply them into your life. Now, that's why we teach hermeneutics. So Ryan teaches hermeneutics and we'll... Once we have a building, we'll do it again. And um, we want to give you the tools to be able to do this. Now, when people aren't able to understand, they are um, easy prey for manipulative preachers. They, they, they can tell you things, superficial understandings, false understandings, things taken out of context, and you don't know. So as, as Ryan said in Hebrews, you gain discernment by doing the work of learning. And the author of Hebrews said, I want to teach you these things, but you are dull of hearing. Um, and you need to get working harder at it. Now, 
somebody says, well, I'll ask the question for you. Well, does that mean if you have a high IQ, you're going to be a better Christian? No. It, it, God isn't going to hold us accountable for what he didn't give us. If he didn't give us a high IQ, it's not a sin to not have it. But we should work as hard as we can to understand with whatever abilities we have. Uh, and, and, and like Dr. LeVang said at, at North Central, I know God doesn't need our intelligence, but I'm sure he needs our ignorance a lot less. <laughs> and, and he said that to us to get us working, study. Oh, yeah. One of the worst heretics we know has got the highest IQ of anybody we've ever met. And when they hired him, were you there when he gave his speech to seminary? I was at chapel when he gave his first speech, and there wasn't anybody in the whole chapel could understand a word he said. He was using this high-level version of logic that works like differential calculus. Um. And, and if you ever study differential calculus, it, it, it takes it takes some um, constants and variables within a certain range. From here to here, this happens. And he was using all this kind of, and he handed out the sheets with all this logic on it. And not one person in the whole place could understand. Well, then when Ryan ended up taking him for theology, we find out he's got he's he's one of these panentheists, and it's not even Christian. So being intelligent doesn't make you spiritual. And uh, but if we humble ourselves and we want to know and we're willing to study, we'll grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And and just look at the words of Jesus. How many times did he say, "And do you not understand?" And if you don't understand this, how are you going to understand the other parable? It's clear that Jesus actually wanted his disciples to understand. And Paul wants us to understand, and Peter wants us to understand, because when you understand, then you know what the truth is, and when you know what the truth is, it sets you free, and it gives you uh, a stability in your life, and it starts to affect every aspect of your being, including your emotional well-being. Because the truth really is like a rock that God sets us on, and we uh, we can weather the storms. Yes. I just wanted to share on that note about intelligence. Um, I worked for eight years in a group home with developmentally disabled people. And um, a lot of times as I was able to, I'd try to share scripture with them. And some of them had a greater grasp on the gospel than some of the most intelligent, highly educated people that I knew. And I also to say about how the Scriptures can really heal you emotionally. Um, there was a while when I went through a super dark period and I was on antidepressants. And the Lord's, the word of the Lord just spoke deeply into my being when I got deeper and deeper into Scripture. And I eventually just flushed my antidepressants down the toilet and I said, Lord, you're going to sustain me through your word. And he has, and I've never needed them since. Amen. Okay, Nicole, thank you. Now... Remember Jesus said, I thank thee, Father, that you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed it to babes. So understanding comes by God's revelation. But the revelation is the Scriptures. Okay? And so he has to soften our heart before we're even willing to listen to what he said. Otherwise, we'll have hard hearts. Now, I'm going to preach a sermon, by the way, today. I'm in Luke. Uh, I had it all done a week ago. I was going to preach it, but I... Uh, <laughs> I didn't even have anybody in the airport to preach to. I was in this airport. Okay. I got to tell you a little bit of my story. I got up at 3.30 in the morning to go to the airport, took the rental car, 
drop the keys in this little locked little box of the hole at the, at the rental car. Keys go down in there because there's nobody around. Take my luggage. I checked out of the hotel. Go up to the place and the guy says, your flight's canceled. I said, what? <laughs> well, how am I supposed to get out of here? You want me to call you a cab? <laughs> I said, well, don't you have other flights? He goes, oh. <laughs> he printed out a ticket for tomorrow. For the next day, he handed it to me. This is this is at 4:30 in the morning, and then because no flight went, this little beautiful big airport in Fort Smith, Arkansas, but not that many flights go out there. I don't know where they got the money for their fancy airport. That had a, it had a bathroom that had a plaque on the wall that they had the best bathroom in America, and you should have seen it. I mean, this is a men's room, and they had this great big island of beautiful marble and. Uh, Lounge chairs. You could have. I should have slept there. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you could that bathroom could have doubled as a kitchen. You'd be very happy with it. But there's nobody there. So the TSA people went away. The gate people went away, and close up everything. And I'm the only person in the whole airport. <laughs> so I crawled up on some uncomfortable chairs and. Fell asleep. So I was what? Um, but I had a sermon ready. And I would have. I would have preached. Went back and tried to fish out your keys. Is what you did. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Then what was funny was there was another guy that. See, I had National. This other guy had Avis, and Avis had this kind of a long, narrow little thing you drop your key in. And mine was a, long, a deep, deep one, and his was more like this. Well, this guy, same thing, because I was standing there being. Saw him coming in. He dropped his key in the thing. He went over there. And they told him there was no flight. He went back out and he fished down in there, pulled his key out, <laughs> went back to his rental car. And I thought, oh man, I gotta do that. So I could see it down in the bottom of that and I got my, co- I got my comb. And I was going. <laughs> but I, I, my comb wouldn't reach it and I, I couldn't get the key out of the rental car place. <laughs> and so I waited until like seven and I started calling people on my cell phone. What did they do before cell phones? I called, uh, I called Jim at the at the uh, base there, and he said he'd come and get me. I called Diane, I called Carl, and I called Ryan, and told Ryan, you got to preach a sermon tomorrow. <laughs> so he jumped into action. <clears throat> so, but the sermon's going to be about uh, Luke 4, where Jesus goes into his hometown, he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he proclaims himself as the Messiah, citing Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 as proof. And they got so angry before he was done that they went to throw him off of a hill. And, uh, well, I don't want to, I'll tell you in the sermon with the main point, but (laughs) the key, the real important thing is that God hides these things from the widest and prudent, but reveals them to babes. And we've got to be smart enough to know we're a babe. We've we got to be smart enough, quote-unquote, to know that we know nothing and that we're hopeless, lost sinners, and that, and that God shows us no mer- didn't show us mercy, it would be impossible. And that's what it means to be a babe, is that you want to know. Yes? And, and all I was going to say is that when it talks about understanding, it's more than just an intellect. The true understanding is with the heart, because the smart scribes and the Pharisees knew what Jesus claimed and knew what Jesus promised and knew what... The scriptures said, and were offended when Jesus applied them to them, but they had no defense 
it was it was clear to them what the claims were and intellectually they understood the arguments they just refused to believe and therefore their hard understanding was missing and the people that have a a weak intellectual understanding but do believe in faith what they do receive have true understanding from God and it's salvific yeah, and actually it says those who have little moral be given you know if you trust God Remember the rich young ruler? He knew what was right, didn't he? He knew. He understood. He just didn't want to do it. Yeah, he understood. There's a guy who actually did a whole bunch of research because he had to decide for himself whether Jesus was really raised from the dead. It was a rabbi, I think. Pincus Lapid. And, and there's an Ankerberg video of him somewhere. And he came to the conclusion that Jesus really was raised from the dead. There's, the evidence points to that. But he never converted to believing in Messiah. He just kept it at an intellectual uh, level. So you have to actually put your trust. So faith has got to be more than mental assent. That'd be a good illustration for that article I wrote. Remember about repentance and, and uh, refuting, uh, refuting the idea that faith is only mental assent? If faith was only mental assent, then that rabbi who doesn't commit to Jesus but believes he was raised from the dead would be saved. But he doesn't want to be saved. He wants to, he wants to stay as he is. So... That's true. Now, one more verse here. I think we can cover 14. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you are also ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, when it talks about the day of our Lord Jesus, that's generally, in fact, almost always, uh, uh, talking about the parousia, you know, the, the eschatological day when all is made known. All the secrets of men's heart will be revealed. All truths will be brought to the, forth, to the forefront, and then it'll be clear what the truth is. But he's hoping that they gain understanding now, because if we don't come to a full understanding of the gospel now, the day of the Lord is not going to be a good thing. It would be a very bad thing. Uh, a couple cross references for this one: Lois, uh, one Corinthians three twenty-one to twenty-three. And Pat, Philippians 1, 6, and 10. I'm skipping a few there, but Philippians 1, 6, and 10. And Noel, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. So Lois says 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. Okay, so don't glory in the world. And, and the problem they were having in addressing First Corinthians was they were deciding who the favorite, their favorite preachers were and then aligning themselves based on that rather than based on the finished work of Christ. Sort of a personality cults. Okay, and then we have Philippians 1, 6, and 10. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of, the, until the day of Christ Jesus. And then, then 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So twice he talks about that day of Christ. So that um, 
when the judgment comes, it'll be good because we've been able to approve the things that are excellent would be to use discernment, to be able to discriminate between what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong. Okay, and then 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Thank you. So, so again, Paul talks about that eschatological day when the truth will be manifested and the redeemed will be gathered together and it will be seen what great work God did in people's lives. A gathering of saved sinners, ultimately perfected by God and fellowshipping around the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb, reclining in the kingdom of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> by the way, uh, uh, that secret message of Jesus book I read while I was on my trip from McLaren, the, his, the whole thing is based on a faulty definition of the kingdom of God. He, he talks about the kingdom of God in almost every page of that book. But he doesn't. his definition of it, at least as far as I can tell, is just people doing good works uh, kind of along the lines of the social gospel, and the kingdom gradually emerges, even if it takes hundreds of thousands of years. There's no day of the Lord. There's no judgment. There's no hell. There's no end of the earth, by the way. He believes that the earth goes on and on and on and on forever. And he believes in resurrection, but the resurrection will be universally resurrection to come back onto the earth because there's no hell. And so he doesn't know how all those people are going to fit on earth. Uh, McLaren, Emergent Church. Interesting book. That's, that's uh, my summary of the secret message of Jesus. It was a secret message because Jesus really didn't say it. <laughs> yeah, he should have kept it a secret. So he was wondering, he addresses the idea, well, I wonder why nobody found this for 2,000 years. Well, they found it 100 years ago. It's called a liberal social gospel. <laughs> okay, well, we're out of time. We'll start with verse 15 next week. Um, please uh, help us take these chairs down so there's room for people to fellowship and have their coffee. And we'll see you upstairs at 1030.